As always, thank you, Jessica. Appreciate that. I'm so encouraged to know that I am being helped in prayer this morning by our youngest Sunday school class that has been praying for me. So thank you, uh, Lily and Mason and Chantry. And I'm not sure if this is another name or just somebody was practicing the letters of the alphabet. Samantha. So thank you so much for your prayers. And we learned in 2 Corinthians that prayer literally helps. So thank you for your help this morning. Speaking of 2 Corinthians, we are in the book of 2 Corinthians. We are going to continue our journey this morning through this book. And Paul has been talking to us primarily. We're going to be in verse 12 this morning. But in the previous verses, Paul has been talking to us about suffering. And he is he is uh, jubilant. He is upbeat, even though he's just come through one of the worst times in his life where he literally thought he was going to die. And Paul's a tough guy and he has faced death before death defying situations. But in the previous verses, we saw where the apostle apostle thought this is it. I got the official certificate of death. I'm not going to make it. But the reason he's encouraged is because when he was emptied of all of his personal resources and powers and all the things that he was able to rely on to to get him out of difficult situations, when they were depleted, God came in and lifted his heart up. God gave him strength, gave him courage to press on in his service to the Lord. And so it it makes me um, so Paul's response to the suffering was to come out of it with just more praise and adoration to God. And it makes me think about kind of segueing into our text this morning. We know that God has purposes for suffering and we looked at those in our last sermons. But is there really such a thing as a way that people ought to respond to suffering? Suffering is one of those things that's universal. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist. Because of the world that we live in, people will, to some degree, sooner or later, experience suffering. So it's not something that we can escape. But a question to ponder is, is there actually a right way or a wrong way to respond to suffering? Is it, is it an excuse for us or a free pass for us to grow bitter? Or for us to, from that point on, desire vengeance against those who have caused us to suffer? Is it a good opportunity or is it right for me to respond with self-pity? And to expect that... The whole world should be sympathetic and should now serve me in my time of suffering and grief. Is there such a thing, in other words, what I'm asking, is there a right, actually a right way to respond to suffering? Because if it's universal and everybody is experiencing it, is there also a way that we ought to respond? Well, the Apostle Paul, I think, responds in a good way and a right way. But there's something else that's universal that we're going to look at this morning. And that is that all people experience this. And this is our conscience. 
everybody has a conscience. No matter what faith you are or of no faith. Everybody has a conscience. And a conscience isn't something that we hear a lot about these days. And so I want to kind of spend some time. This is what the Apostle Paul is going to bring up in our text this morning. I want to spend some time on this. Not so long ago, as you know, my many of you know, my truck was stolen. And I got my truck back, but it was filled with almost all my tools, thousands of dollars of tools. And I did not get those back. So I had to work with the insurance company and try to get reimbursed. And one of the things I had to do was, uh, of course, order new tools. And so I ordered a combo. A, um, I had to try to match it to as closely as possible to what I originally had. And so I wound up ordering a, um, don't drool guys, but a cordless Milwaukee combo pack with about five different tools in it. Brand new. But one of those tools, a right angle drill... It didn't work. It was brand new, but it didn't work. So I called the store where I got it, and I said, you know, I got this combo pack, and I explained it to them. And I said, what do you want me to do with it? And they said, well, ordinarily you'd have to send the whole thing back to us, but since it's just one of the five, what I'll do is I'll reimburse you for the current price of that tool, and, um, and then you can take that money to repurchase the tool uh, that works or do whatever you want with it. And I thought, okay. So then we hung up. I got credited that money. And uh, I and I'm looking at this tool and I'm thinking, I hate this though. I said, do you want me to, I had asked, do you want me to bring it to the store or anything? And she said, no, just do whatever you want with it. And I'm looking at this thing, brand new. I only used it, tried to use it one time. And, you know, it's just a shame to throw something this new away. Huh? It's bothering me. So I start looking at it and playing with it. And I notice this little button. teeny little switch that could be up or down. And I noticed that it was like stuck in the metal. So I'm thinking, hmm, never noticed this before. And I start messing with it. And it turns out that after I messed with it, it starts working properly. So it was kind of my fault, but kind of not my fault. But anyway, I didn't know about that switch and it wasn't in the right spot. That's why it didn't work right out of the box. It had gotten jarred or something. So anyway, I looked at it and I observed it and I was able to fix it. So now I have a working drill that I had been reimbursed for. Now, let me just be honest with you. This is all in a matter of seconds what I'm thinking. Some of my thoughts are, uh, wow, thank you, Lord. <laughs> and... It's just in a matter of seconds, don't judge me or condemn me, because then I realize, wait a minute, this, this isn't right. I mean, I literally just got reimbursed for a drill that now works perfectly fine. I even went out in the shop and tested it to make sure. It works first perfectly fine. So now something begins to um, speak to me, counsel me, inform me, trouble me urge me, whatever, provoke me, however you want. And it's my conscience. And I begin to realize, again, this is all in a matter of seconds. It wasn't like days I'm sweating. What should I do here? And I realize, I come to this conclusion, I cannot in good conscience keep this drill. I can't keep the money and I can't keep the drill. It's not mine to have. So my conscience pricked me. 
And I call him back and I tell him the situation. It's working. What do you want me to do? And it worked out to my advantage. But I told the person on the phone, I cannot in good conscience keep either the money or the drill. What would you like me to do? And it did work out to my advantage. However, my conscience kicked in. What is a conscience? What do you do with a conscience? Hmm? What did she say? I missed it. It has to do with feelings. It's something in you. And we are going to talk. I thought somebody said Jiminy Cricket, which um, the secretary, I think I have it here. Actually, I'm going to make mention of Jiminy Cricket in, in a few minutes. But I actually found a picture of good old Jiminy Cricket and put it on the bulletin. In the days of Reformation... Uh, Martin Luther stood against the established church or the known church at that time, and he had he had observed some big errors in even the gospel, some teaching that had gone astray from the word of God, and he God gave him the courage to stand against some of the errors that he saw in the church, and it came down to a showdown where he had to face the council and the leaders of the church. And they basically told him, you need to recant. It's one of these things where you need to recant or else. And his life literally uh, was threatened many, many times. So he's just one man against the entire church. And people are wondering, what is he going to do? Because this is the time and the hour where he has to give an answer. And he stands, if I remember correctly, he stands in the middle of this council as he faces them. And he makes a very, very powerful and profound statement. And he says, I will not recant. It is neither right or safe for me to go against my conscience. It's not right to begin with, nor is it even safe for me to go against my conscience. Conscience, here I stand. I want to read out of Second Corinthians verses 12 through 14 because the Apostle Paul is making an appeal to his conscience. And here's what he says. Where our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. That we have behaved in the world with simplicity and and godly sincerity. So, our conscience has to do with our choices of behavior. And in his case, it had to do with living a simple life according to godly sincerity, which means according to God's ways. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So if you think about the bulletin in the picture, most of us have probably seen the, uh, the, the Disney version of Pinocchio. And if you remember right, Pinocchio was a wooden marionette hand-carved by a woodcarver, Geppetto. And 
course, this is just make-believe and just story, an entertaining story, but this wooden marionette, Pinocchio, starts dreaming and develops a desire to be a real boy. Real boy. He wants to live life like a real boy, not just a wooden puppet. Then enter the blue fairy who informs him that this is possible. Uh, If you can prove, she says, to be brave, truthful, and unselfish, you will be a real real boy. Interesting uh, test to have to prove in order to be real humanity. I wonder where they got these ideas from. That you have to be truthful. You have to be brave and you have to be unselfish. And so you fast forward and the movie is all about him becoming a real boy. One of the little characters in this movie, he's not quite exactly real because his conscience isn't in here, it's out there. And his conscience shows up in the form of Jiminy Cricket. So Jiminy Cricket serves as his moral voice, if you will. The voice of right and wrong. By the way, uh, Jiminy Cricket, as innocent and cute as he, you know, as I remember him as when I watched Pinocchio as a kid, if you lived in the early 1900s, and maybe there's some of you out there this morning, if you lived in the early 1900s, Jiminy Cricket was a euphemism for Jesus Christ, J.C., Jiminy Cricket. And it's what people said in that day rather than saying, using the Lord's name in vain. Jiminy Cricket, or perhaps you've heard Jiminy Christmas. That's just kind of a gee whiz information that I came upon. So Jiminy would give Pinocchio moral advice, and Pinocchio had to decide what is he going to do with this moral advice, because oftentimes it was not the advice he wanted to hear, because in order to be a real boy, he wanted to have real fun. And sometimes having real fun, according to Pinocchio, meant going against the voice of moral reason. Now, in the real book, not in the movie, the movie was for kids and it was much tamer and and had a better feel to it. But in the real book, Jiminy Cricket so irritates Pinocchio that he throws a hammer at him and kills him. Kills that irritating voice interjects itself into his life. Throws a hammer at it. The book is not as tame as the movie. As a matter of fact, then he goes and falls asleep by the fire and his legs catch on fire. It's just it's a whole different thing. <laughs> The conscience is one of those things that we don't hear a lot about it. We're not so sure about what it is or what to do with it these days. But it is very, very important to everybody, but in particular to believers. And one of the reasons that I'm going to spend some time this morning talking about conscience is because it's crucial to our Christian growth. It's it's crucial to our Christian formation. It's something God gave to humanity to enable us to experience Him and the joy of life and to live it as it is meant to be lived. It is an incredible thing that God has 
given to us. And I talked about suffering and I asked you to ponder the question, is there really a, a right way to respond to suffering? Is there a right way to respond to the things that come into our lives and the decisions that we have to make? Is, is there a way, what we might call an oughtness, things that we ought to do? The reason I bring that idea up is because we are faced with this, with, with the dilemmas and the decisions of the difference between right and wrong. And the way that we're going to land or make that decision is going to be based on what we think we ought to do, how we think we ought to behave, as opposed to the isness. So if you take oughtness versus isness, isness is what people actually do. Isness describes, well, here's what people are doing. But just because people are responding in this way or, or making these kind of decisions, does that make it right? The oughtness is what we would call ethics, and that is the objective standard where people say, now this doesn't budge, this is right or wrong whether you like it or not. The isness, or what we would say morality, a person's morals, their culture, this is how they're responding or these are the decisions they're making in life. And this is important, especially in our culture, because a lot of our, uh, our morals become what we call ethics or oughtness. And the way we do this, and I'm sure you've seen it, is we'll come up with like a, a moral statistic. So, for instance, uh, and I'm just going to make this up. Let's just say 98% of 10th graders smoke pot. Therefore, I'm making this up. No, I don't know if it's that high. It might be higher. I don't know. So, so therefore, since that many, say in the United States, that many 10th graders smoke pot, it's a normal thing to do. And it, what it does is it reveals human nature. It's a natural, normal. Obviously, it's got to be natural, normal, because people that age do it. Therefore, it's uh, it's morally okay to smoke pot. So you take how people are behaving and make that your ethic. So there's a big difference between how things ought to be and how things are. Morals don't mean that you obey the ethic. We can make decisions contrary to that. So if that's true, then what feeds our conscience? If our conscience is going to be that voice that's going to tell us this is right and this is wrong, our Jiminy Cricket, if you will. And by the well, no, I'll talk, I'll say that later. But our Jiminy Cricket, then what are, what's going to feed our Jiminy Cricket, so to speak, with the right advice to give us? Of course, we know as Christians, it's the Word of God. And we talked about this this morning. God's Word is truth, absolute truth. Doesn't matter what we think about it or not. And, of course, we would want to feed our conscience with the authoritative word of God that cannot be broken. The Apostle Paul appeals to his conscience. He says, look, I have lived sincerely and godly. Now, why would he even bring this up to begin with? It's not something that we would bring up in normal conversation. He brings it up because, as you will see the book unfold, he is being falsely accused by false teachers and false apostles. And not only do they go after the message of the gospel and distort it, 
They go after the messenger. And they began to say untrue things about the messenger of the gospel. So his character is at stake. And if, if you put somebody's character at stake, well, yeah, it's going to affect the message. So Paul defends himself by appealing to his conscience. And some of the things that you will see, the accusations that are coming at him, and I'll just paraphrase these, um, but he's leading you astray. He's in it for the money. He can't be trusted. He's got some kind of conspiracy going on here. He just wants to control you. He wants to manipulate you and take advantage of you. Now, he's a Johnny come lately. He can't. So it's hard. He has the burden of the gospel, but his character's being attacked. So he's defending himself. But isn't it profound? As important as the gospel is, that he appeals to his conscience to defend himself? Because he could have said to people who whose lives he changed through the gospel, he could say, could you write me a letter? Look, you've seen me in action. You know my true character. And get some references so I could bring to these Corinthians and just show them I am, I'm true. I am who I am. Say I am. Or could you come and visit with me and travel with me so I have an eyewitness and a voice that can attest to my character. I mean, there's different things that we can do to defend ourselves against falsehood. He appeals to his conscience. In and of himself, as compared to the word of God, he is saying, not that he lived perfectly, but he's saying, I lived openly, I lived honestly, and I... My, my motive was to obey God in everything. I'm not hiding things from you. There's no underlying motives. He appeals to his conscience as if that's all that he needs. And by the way, there are times when sometimes our conscience before God is the only thing we have. In the sense that not everybody, even if you have test uh, people that are willing to testify for you and so forth... Sometimes the whole world might still think we're guilty of something and all we have is the innocence of our conscience before God. Sometimes only God and you or you and God know the truth. The conscience is a powerful thing and that can be enough. I want us to look at three things pertaining to the conscience this morning. First of all, it is a gift of God. Secondly, it's not infallible. And I'll break that down a little bit. And then uh, thirdly, it can be redeemed and it can be shaped so that it can better serve the purpose of Christ. The conscience is a gift of God. John MacArthur tells a little story. It's a true story. He says in 1984, a jet crashed in Spain. And the investigators studying the accident made a discovery, an eerie discovery, and they found the black box, you know, that records everything in the planes. They found it in the cockpit, in the cockpit, uh, where they record the dialogue of the pilots and the controllers. And several minutes before the plane crashed fatally, uh, from this box, they listened to a shrill, computerized, synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system that told the crew repeatedly 
in English, pull up, pull up, pull up. And the pilots inexplicably snapped back, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane smashed into the side of a mountain and everyone died. He says that's a, a perfect parable of the way that modern people treat the warning message of the conscience. And he beautifully coins the conscience as the soul's warning system. It's a gift of God uh, which every human being is created with to serve as a warning system, but also an affirming system as well. To warn us from doing wrong, to keep us from having these kind of fatal accidents. Now, here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And here's how we know it's a, a gift of God. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Bible, the Ten Commandments, what have you, by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, this is profound. We talked about... This morning, how do we really know truth? How do we really know that the Bible is filled with truth? Well, it turns out that one of the things that the Bible says is that when God created humanity within them, he also put the law of God. And you might read the Bible and say, wait a minute, we didn't get the law of God until Moses gave it to us on from Mount Sinai. No, the law of God before that was already written on the hearts of men at what is known of as the covenant of creation. So we were created with certain resources and abilities, and this is one of them. So mankind was, was created with an inkling, a knowing, an understanding of the law of God. And the conscience bears witness to that. It confirms that. We have something speaking to us, a voice in our head, a built-in sense of right and wrong. That's why... Anywhere in the world, there are cultures that uh, there's a great deal of variety in the ways they live life, but there is also unity. There are things worldwide that people agree on regarding right and wrong. How is that possible? That people on the opposite side of the globe that have never seen each other, know anything about each other, how can they kind of live similarly when it comes to morality? It's because they're living according to how they were created. This is a standard of God. Humans are created with that. And so by nature, it's instinctive. It, it, it comes natural. It's part of being a real boy. It's a unique gift. As man created in the image of God, not every creature has this. Mankind does. And there are times, and time and time again, when our conscience will tell us, pull up, pull up. Pull up. You are headed for a life disaster. It's a voice that's unique because it doesn't come from the outside. It 
comes from the inside. And because it comes from the inside, it knows everything about us. It knows our motives for wanting to make the decisions that we're making. It knows the excuses and the dialogue that we have in our head regarding, should I do this or should I not? As Paul said, to accuse or excuse. Do I have the freedom or not to act in this way? It knows our true guilt, but it also knows our true innocence. And if we have a regard for truth, if we have a regard for right and wrong, then we will want to encourage it in the right way, which, of course, would be by the standard of God. Those that have no regard for right and wrong don't have a good reason to want to nurture this conscience. And so sometimes, yes, we find people or cultures throwing a hammer at this voice that is trying to warn them not to destroy their lives in particular ways. What kind of shape is our conscience in this morning? What are we bringing into our lives to inform our conscience so that it is properly informed with right and wrong and not just culturally or traditionally informed with right and wrong? I think it's safe to say that in some respect, our culture is systematically trying to silence this God-given conscience. There are things that our culture is after it does not like. The Jiminy Cricket voice, it's sick and tired of hearing certain things about how we should live or how we shouldn't live. And the hammer is being thrown. Isn't it interesting that our culture is fed up with guilt and shame? Just fed up with it. Tired of being guilted and shamed in the thing. So it's not uncommon to, to see words like body shaming. That's something new. Or food shaming. People are tired. I don't want, to, I don't want your opinion on how you think I ought to look. Or what kind of shape my body ought to be in. Or I don't want you looking and sneering at what I put on my plate. It makes me feel guilty and I'm tired of it. Or what I will call religious shaming. Look, you have your sets of beliefs. You can believe what you want about life and what's right and wrong. But for crying out loud, would you stop trying to get me to live like you and according to your morals and your standards and your rules? It's driving me crazy. All it does is make me feel guilty and, and I'm oppressed. You are keeping me in bondage. And we have a culture that is sick and tired of being oppressed and under the bondage of people's rules and regulations. Do we not? But are we turning to the right place? What is our culture's solution if we remove the standard of God to relieving us of the reality of guilt and shame. It's a real thing. You can't, and there is a real way to get rid of it. It's a real experience. So if we're tired of this, how do we get out of it? Well, here are some solutions that our culture is offering us. Uh, ironically, it's to change to reform or reshape our conscience to feel guilty and shameful about different things. 
So what we are seeing in our is a cultural crisis you've been seeing, and I know you're aware of this, that have you noticed that the, the emphasis on what to feel shameful about has changed or is beginning to change? So, okay, you can't make me... It's no longer fair game to make me feel guilty, say, about my sexual preferences. It's absolutely off the table anymore. And there's laws that say they agree with me. It's just wrong for you to impose your opinion or, or a judgment of right and wrong on my sexual preferences. However, if I catch you using plastic. If you use plastic bottles... You are destroying the earth. Now the sneers and the guilt is being shifted. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with environmentalism. We are stewards, by the way, of what God has given us. He holds us accountable to take, take, take care of it. I'm just showing you there's a shift now in the things that we are being shamed for. What we're, in other words, what we are allowed to shame people for. So it's not like we're set free from shame in one sense. It's a shifting. It's a reforming of what we feel guilty about. You shouldn't feel guilty about your sexual preference, but you should feel guilty about being a farmer. Because if you have cows, we all know cows produce methane and it's already hot enough in here. And methane is even worse than CO2. This is all true. It's even worse than CO2. And you are baking our world, our planet. It's very emphatic. I'm not making this stuff up. You know, you see it. This is happening. So that's one of the solutions make to make us feel better uh, about ourselves is to, well, let's just rally around the things that we decide are the most important, the most valuable to us. It's a transition. It's a... It's a shift. So there's things. Poor Jiminy Cricket. Having an identity crisis. It's a matter of who gets to control the standard by which now humanity will or will not feel guilty or shame. And let me just say that the Bible has answers to these kind of things. If the Bible is true, God is real, all truth is God's truth. The hardest things that our world faces, the Bible has answers to. Let me just interject that before we run off and get too worried about the direction. There is a real way to get rid of real guilt and real shame. And the reason we have real guilt, if I tell a lie, I feel bad. Before I became a Christian, if I lied to my parents, I felt guilty. I didn't always respond in the right way and confess and those kind of things, but I really felt bad. So there's a right way. There is a standard of right and wrong. All humanity are under it, and it's found right in here. And it's not just the law of God. The law of God literally reflects the character, the being of God. It's not just about rules. Don't stop at the rules. It's about relationship. It's about throwing your life down at the feet of a worthy God. And he has given us these rules and these regulations not to oppress us and enslave us, but to free us from the things that really do oppress us and enslave us. And that is lies. 
a, a false way, a misleading way to do life and enjoy life. These rules and regulations, as you will hear shortly in a series that I'm going to do called Beautiful Things, it's not to keep beautiful things from us. It's to keep beautiful things beautiful. That's what the law is of God is about. So He's given us this law, and when we break it or transgress it, rightly so, we will feel real guilt and shame. However, God does not leave us in that place. He offers us forgiveness. If we repent and we say, you're real, your rules are right, I give, I'm wrong, you're right, I repent, now I see the error of my ways and I'm going to strive to do the right thing. He offers us forgiveness through Jesus Christ who paid the price for our sin. So, and what happens with forgiveness is he takes that guilt and shame and he removes it. And you don't have to live your whole life oppressed and enslaved to even your own transgressions. Is that incredible or what? That's called grace. Our ladies are going through one of their studies is in the book of Hebrews. And when they get to chapter 10, they will come upon these verses. Um, the author of this book says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so based on everything that Christ has done, the work of Christ, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. We just say that the way to get out from under the guilt is to have your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. And the way that is done is by repenting of our sins and putting our faith that in Christ as our Savior. And Scripture says it's removed. You are now clean. That's the proper way to remove guilt. Not by exchanging one life for another. Not by shifting or reshaping what we feel guilty about. By living according to God's truth. It's real. That's how we rid ourselves of this intense pain. It's how we rid ourselves of our our own failures, our self-identified failures. It's a gift of God, our conscience, and it's a warning system and it's an affirming system, accusing or excusing. And secondly, we have to remember that the conscience is not infallible. It has to be, of course, informed by the Word of God. It's a gift. It's a good gift. And as R.C. Sproul once said, your conscience is can send you to hell. Because if your conscience is not rightly informed and you're feeling good about things you should feel bad about and bad about things you should feel good about, your conscience can help send you to hell. Theologian Colin Guten says, the conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God. Now, this is important to understand the distinctions. It's not to be equated with the voice of God because it's our own conscience. It's not the voice of God or even the moral law of God. It's a human faculty 
which agitates upon human action. So it's, it's, it's making judgments according to what? He says, the light of the highest standard that a person perceives. So our conscience is working, hopefully for us, maybe against us, but it's using our highest understanding of rightness to draw conclusions. Doesn't necessarily mean our standard is God's word, but we're drawing for something. Something is telling us we're right and wrong or wrong. And it's our highest concept of rightness. But it is our voice, not God's voice. It's a gift that God has given us. And it works best when informed by the law of God, but it's not infallible because man is fallen. All of our faculties are unreliable. Our reason, our feeling, our logic, our thoughts. And, it's, and so we're not going to always react properly to things as we should. So we have to be careful and even our own consciences have to be lined up and come in accord with the word of God. He continues, seeing that all human nature has been affected by sin, a person's perception of the standard of action required and the function of the conscience are also affected by sin. For this reason... We have to be careful how we ultimately judge our behavior because it's possible that the conscience may excuse one for that which God will not excuse and conversely it is equal possi equally possible the conscience may condemn a person from that. In other words, our conscience might encourage us to do the wrong thing and discourage us from doing the right thing. We have to be careful what's informing it. Now, even the church can... The, the, even people can add to God's laws and hold people in bondage in their conscience to things that God never said or intended. We have to be careful with that. In the 4th century, St. Jerome, Corky talked about the Latin Vulgate. He wrote, translated the New Testament in Latin. Well, in the early church at that time, consciences were pricked and shamed for things that today are you wouldn't even blink an eye at. On that day and age, if you wore lipstick or makeup, you should be ashamed of yourself. Because you are deceiving the public. And you were created a certain way. And I'm telling you the the thought process behind this. You were created uniquely and specifically by God and for you to alter your appearance is a deceptive sin. Shame on you. Just like somebody would take a cracked pot and make it look like it was something it wasn't. You're making yourself look like something you are not. Live openly. Live honestly. Do not put that lipstick on. Do not put that makeup on. Did you know that there was ever a time that the church actually held such a position and it was based on God's word? Some of you are thinking, thank the Lord, we no longer have to abide by that particular thing. Neither is the culture right. But we want to make sure that we are properly informed.
And what our, another thing our culture says is rather than feeling stuck in guilt and shame, the way that you come out from under it is to blame everybody but yourself for the troubles in your life. So you hear things like, you poor thing, it's your parents' fault. You poor thing, it's society's fault. I'm not saying there isn't truth and that we share a blame, but unless we take personal responsibility for our actions, our choices, how we live our lives, we cannot be set free from guilt and shame. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And we can work against ourselves. You see, the, the culture's offer of free being free from guilt and shame, it's a great offer, but it is not real. It doesn't work because it's presenting a, an alternative reality and basically say, look, just believe positive things about yourself and tell yourself these things enough times until you believe them as the truth and then you'll be set free from your guilt and shame. But that's not real. It doesn't work. And so we live in a society and a culture that is broken and will continue to be broken until we turn and give our lives to Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our last point, and that is because the conscience needs to be informed, it can be shaped. In other words, it can get in a terrible position or it can be built up into a wonderful, useful tool as the gift of God. So if that's true, I want to close by just having us think about if my conscience can be affected by outside voices, yes, there's the law of God written in my heart then what can I expect of my conscience based on what I'm feeding it? And I'll just tell you right now, I know what's out in the world. I watch the news. I see the media. I see what's on the web. I hear the music. What's being sung are poetry today and all the shows on TV. And I can just tell you right now that when you are feeding yourself that, you are not doing your conscience any favors because it has gotten to the point where there's there's no longer uh, there's not a lot of innocent things left out there anymore and if you're listening to the world's culture and the world's ways and the world's truths are coming through through all the media and you are absorbing them and you may not even know it and you're conscious now for instance 51 percent of not just um, millennials, 51% of evangelical millennials do not believe that homosexuality is morally wrong. Now, I'm talking about evangelical. This is in the ch our church. It's a half. And you think, well, but how is that possible? Here's how it's possible. Well, if you look at God's law and word, you're going to come to a pretty easy conclusion if you study what God has to say about it. But if you don't realize you're drinking 
for lack of better words, the poison of the culture that is giving you another message and it is redefining what love is. It's redefining what sex is. All of these messages and you're drinking them, drinking them in. And then next thing you know, well, I don't see any, I don't have a moral issue with that. As long as they're happy, as long as they love each other, as long as they're committed. We have to be careful what we feed our consciences. As parents, we have to be careful and be the guardian of what our children are being exposed to and taking in because it is having an impact. We want to submit ourselves to the Word of God. So we know what God's Word says and the expectations of it and the beauty of a relationship, what that can do for us. And it can truly free us from our guilt and shame. And then we know what the world says, which just gives us different opportunities and different prison cells to live in, thinking, well, maybe this one is better. And we have to respond to the truth of God as we hear it. So I want to close by saying to you, consider your guilt and consider your gain, your shame. And have you brought it to the feet of Christ? Have you repented of your sin and felt the freedom of the chains falling off so that you can live in a way that better serves Christ in a humanity as you were created to, to be, to bring God glory. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.